Over the course of the war, two interests in particular have driven the attempt to strip Syria of its chemical weapons. The US and Israel have always wanted to strip Syria of its chemical weapons because chemical weapons are known as a poor man's nuclear bomb. If you look at the executive order 13338, which is the name of the 2005 sanctions against Syria that, that was put in place by the US government, they were justified on the grounds that Syria had weapons of mass destruction. So all of this fear-mongering about Syria's alleged use of chemical weapons I think it serves to distract us from the real tragedy, which is that Syria was coerced into giving up its strategic deterrent. Chemical weapons are known as poor man's nukes for a reason, because if they were actually used, we wouldn't be talking about casualties in the tens or hundreds. We'd be talking about tens of thousands of dead. And that's because they were always configured as a strategic deterrent to counter Israel's nuclear and, and chemical weapons arsenals. So the demand to, that, that Syria disarm themselves of their strategic deterrent when they have an aggressive colonizing entity like Israel on their doorstep, amounts to leaving them vulnerable. And I think that's what the fundamental purpose of, of these claims against the Syrian government were. There's also another interest, which is that the militias waging war against the government and, and their public relations outfits have been repeatedly calling on foreign powers to impose, impose a no-fly zone on Syria, which was intended to neutralize Syria's air force. As for whether it was justified, again, um, like it, this goes back to the, the foundational um, point that we've been making for ages. The militias waging war against the Syrian government are reactionary, unpopular, and infinitely more reliant on external support than any internal discontent with the Syrian government. So I'd say no. We'll come to the nature of the Syrian opposition in a moment, but just focusing on the chemical weapons attack itself, you've described the chemical weapons arsenal as a strategic deterrent, which raises the question of why Assad would use chemical weapons. What, according to your analysis, actually happened in Douma a few weeks ago? Was there a chemical weapons attack? If so, who carried it out and why? Well, we have to remember that this is the third time that an allegation has been levelled at the Syrian government. The first was in August 2013. The second was last year in April. And then April this year is the latest one. Uh, but this is the first time that the government rapidly took over the area from which the allegation emerged. All the evidence behind the allegation revolves around video footage produced by the White Helmets, which showed them pouring water on kids who they claimed were affected by chemical gas. Then the area was taken over by the government, and when one of the boys um, who, was, who was filmed in the original White Helmets video was interviewed by Russia Today, he said that the entire episode was staged. Uh, then an American online news channel, One American News, they went to Duma and they interviewed about 20, 30 people, like residents just all over the place, randomly walked up to people. And a lot of them said there was no chemical attack. One of them actually said, oh, yeah, this is, this is just another one of those staged things that they do. These are people who have been living under um, the control of the Jaysh al-Islam militants for the past, uh, since 2012, so six years, actually. Um, and one thing that people don't don't realize is that uh, Jaysh al-Islam and a lot of the other insurgent groups that control areas in other parts of the country, they don't allow civilians to leave the area. So whenever a chemical weapons attack happens and the government doesn't control the area where, where the allegations come from, ultimately uh, you're relying on evidence that's produced by militias that should be treated as suspects. So in, in August 2013, the UN went in under the protection of Jaysh al-Islam um, who controlled the area. And uh, the, the thing that people forget is that the UN was initially called into Syria by the, the Syrian government to investigate the use of chemical weapons by the so-called rebels against Syrian soldiers at a place called Khan al-Assal. And to quote Carla del Ponte, she, she made this 
I'm quoting this from like May 2013. So this is before the first allegation. She said only opponents of the regime have used sarin gas. That's a direct quote. Then last year, the allegations were again based on white helmets footage, like the allegations this time around. But the problem is that white helmets are not impartial, uh, especially when they brandish black flags bearing the emblem of Jabhat al-Husra, which is the official Syrian al-Qaeda franchise. And many of them have, have been been um, carrying weapons and, and facilitating executions as well. Um, so neither the UN nor the OPCW visited the, the sites on the previous occasion. Last year, the UN Security Council didn't even visit Khan Sheikhoun because they considered that, this is the quote, they considered that the high security risk of a site visit to Khan Sheikhoun um, would outweigh the potential benefits of the investigation because it's under the control of a listed terrorist organization. Specifically, they mentioned Nusra Front. So in other words, they're accepting evidence from, from militias uh, who they wouldn't trust with their own lives. And I don't think that's a reasonable basis to be conducting any investigation. It often seems there's an oversimplification of the political situation in Syria, both by pro-Assad and anti-Assad observers, with the former casting all opposition to the regime as necessarily jihadist in nature and or sponsored by Western intelligence agencies, and the latter rather naively continuing to believe there is such a thing as the Syrian Democratic Revolution. Surely there is a need for nuance and a more sophisticated analysis here. As somebody who many people on social media have narrowly categorised as a pro-Assad participant in the debate, do you think there is any legitimate opposition to the Assad government? Of course there was. I mean, we're the ones, we're the ones who, are, who are constantly mentioning the fact that there was. Um, the dominant narrative for explaining the origins of the conflict is, however, false. And that narrative is that the Syrian public, inspired by the Arab Spring protests in neighbouring countries, took to the streets in protest demanding democratic reform. Then the Syrian government responded by murdering innocent civilian protesters, which in turn provoked defections from the army, erupting in a war by the insurgents to overthrow the Syrian state. That's simply not true. The first allegation that the Syrian government was gunning down protesters goes back to a Reuters report from the 23rd of March 2011, which claimed that, 20, that 37 protesters were shot by the government. But of that number, 24 turned out to be Syrian government soldiers. Um, so initially, there were two separate oppositions to the Syrian government. One was calling for peaceful democratic reforms. The other was seeking to overthrow the state by violent means. The government has largely addressed the calls for economic concessions and democratic reforms, while predictably resisting all the attempts by the insurgency to overthrow the Syrian state. So in January and February, they made transfer payments to the poorest families in Syria. Then they changed the constitution in 2012 which eliminated the Ba'ath Party's political monopoly. And, you know, when I went to Syria in, in July 2015, I met a lot of people who supported the protest before the violence began. But today they support the defense of the Syrian government because they know that if the Syrian government falls, then al-Qaeda would, would, would essentially take over the country. And that's something that they don't want. The nature of Russia's involvement in Syria is one of the questions that has been most disputed. Some left commentators regard Russia as an imperialist power pursuing its own interests in the Middle East, while others believe Putin's intervention, both in Syria and elsewhere, acts as a bulwark against the American empire. What are your own views on this extremely divisive subject? Sure. Um, the fact that Russia pursues its own interest does not automatically make Russia's intervention imperialist. Let's start with the basic question. What's the driving force behind the Syrian war? It's the attempt to overthrow the Syrian state, not the Syrian state resisting those attempts. As I said earlier, 
The militias attempting this are reactionary, unpopular, and infinitely more reliant on external support than on internal discontent. That's the foundation of why I and my organization, Hands Off Syria, support the defense of the Syrian government, and it's a position that I haven't seen challenged. A lot of people who accuse Russia of imperialism, uh, uh, they come from a Trotskyist tradition, and they're applying Lenin's template for understanding imperialism, but the problem is that a lot has changed since Lenin's time. So a lot of Trotskyists talk about inter-imperialist war, but the problem is that the era of inter-imperialist war is dead thanks to the heroic sacrifices of the Red Army in defeating the Nazis in World War II. Let me explain. This inter-imperialist war concept goes back to Lenin's time when the world was ruled by European colonial empires, the Ottoman Empire, and Japan. The world that Lenin saw was one in which empires fought each other for the right to possess colonies. Those conditions no longer apply because decolonization happened after the Second World War, which essentially pushed those competing empires that Lenin was talking about into one unified bloc against the post-colonial world. And the Soviet Union sided with the post-colonial world. So Lenin could not have made this analysis because he died in 1924, and you can't base your analysis on the world that he described. Um, so you can compare that to, to um, the Soviet Union by comparison, by, because they aided decolonization. They armed the post-colonial world with the weapons that they needed to defend their independence, and Russia today is playing effectively the same role because they've inherited the, the, the foreign policy of the Soviet Union despite being a capitalist country. Um, the United States, by comparison, after the overthrow of the USSR, they talked about the need to overthrow those, quote, old Soviet regime, which old Soviet regimes, which is Paul Wolfowitz's statement. Um, the United States actually inherited their foreign policy from Germany and Japan. So if you look at a map of Nazi occupied Europe, it overlaps with the map of NATO. Um, whereas if you and if you look at on the other side of Eurasia, the US inherited their foreign policy from the Japanese imperialists, because their main enemies there are North Korea and China, the two countries that Japan wants to colonize in World War II. So, you know, you're talking, the, the accusation of imperialism comes from a time when there was inter-imperialist war, but then decolonization happened. It created a post-colonial world. Syria is one of those post-colonial nations. And because Russia is defending them, they're actually playing an anti-imperialist role. Finally, you know that within, like, this is very short, but within Islam, there's been this debate about whether revelation takes priority over independent reasoning. And I think on the left, we have a very similar situation. On the one side, you have people who treat the writings of Marx, Engels, and Lenin as if they were revealed truths, as if they were gospel, when that's the opposite of what those three wanted. Your, your Marxism has to be scientific and it has to change with the conditions, otherwise it becomes a religion. So no, Russia's not imperialist. Regardless of the fact that there is a wide spectrum of opinion on the Syrian war, I'd like to think that everybody involved in the debate puts the interests of the Syrian people first and foremost in their thinking. So... On uh, that uh, most important point, Jay, what is your view of how we might best express solidarity with the Syrian people? I think the most important thing that we can do is to put our differences aside. I mean, who cares? I mean, whether you think Assad is the second coming of Christ or Satan, it doesn't matter. There are, there are certain things that we can do to, to alleviate the suffering of the Syrian people. The first one is to oppose the economic sanctions on Syria. These are as comprehensive as the sanctions that were imposed on Iraq that killed half a million, half a million children. And Madeleine Albright, the UN representative from the United States, said that the price was worth it. I certainly don't think that Syrian blood should be treated as that cheap. These sanctions are starving the Syrian people and, and, and killing them slowly in ways that we don't fully appreciate. Um, 
because it's not covered in the Western media, but we have to make this an issue. The second issue is the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia arms and funds the various reactionary militant groups that are waging war on the Syrian state. The Australian government sells weapons to Saudi Arabia. This is something we should oppose, especially also because Saudi Arabia is waging a genocidal war against the people of Yemen. So let's not talk about politicians like Assad. Let's actually talk about what we can affect. That's that's what I think we should do. I'm, I'm sick of debating, like arguing with people on the left about Syria. Let's have unity on some of these issues.